Hello, thank you for joining us today as we start to talk about our second half outlook. Now, if we think about the first half of the year, uh, it was widely expected that the Chinese economy would begin its recovery post-COVID. The U.S. economy would start to slow. Uh, and actually, it's uh, kind of not worked out 100% that way. The Chinese economy recently has started to slow again. Well, the U.S. Uh, has been very resilient and the U.S. markets have been very resilient. Uh, interestingly, despite the strength of the U.S. economy and markets, the dollar uh, has weakened. And I think that's an important story we want to cover as well. But to kick this off, let's go straight to our economist at large, Paul Donovan. And Paul, why don't you tell us a little bit about why the U.S. has been doing so well? Thanks, Mark. I mean, it's interesting, of course, isn't it, that the, the U.S. has been slowing down. I mean, there is clear evidence that the post-pandemic boom is, is fading away. But what we've been seeing is that the markets in particular have been slightly positive, surpri positively surprised almost with every uh, consumer-related uh, data release. And I think one of the key reasons here is that while lower-income consumers are, I think, really starting to feel some of the strains of negative real wage growth. They've spent the savings they acquired in the pandemic. They're finding it more difficult to borrow money. The middle-income consumer that is absolutely critical to the economy has been performing actually reasonably well. And I think there's a number of factors behind that. Uh, first is that um, unemployment and therefore fear of unemployment remains pretty low. And that means that consumers aren't panicking. They're not thinking, oh, I must save as an insurance policy. They're, they're still happy to spend. We've seen a rise in female participation in the labor force. And that's very important because, of course, we spend as households. We don't actually tend to spend as individuals. So if a household's now got two incomes coming into it, again, that's going to enhance the spending. One of the really critical things is that for middle income households, inflation has actually been quite a bit lower than the headline numbers suggest because of the way inflation is calculated and what middle income families buy. They've been experiencing a somewhat lower level of inflation, which means their spending firepower has been that bit more impressive. So you take all that together and it means that the middle income households are Again, still slowing down, but they're not panicking. They're not falling off the edge of a cliff. The middle-income households are doing okay. And that means that the economic data has been actually reasonable, uh, albeit in, a, in an overall slowdown context. Okay. So households still feel good, and the inflation for the middle stunt has not been uh, a disaster. But core inflation has stayed high. It's certainly above the Fed targets. So why hasn't that uh, come down and, and what do we expect going forward? Well, the core inflation rate has come down a bit, of course, not as much as the headline, but this was always going to be the case. You know, energy prices always cause these big shifts in, in the headline rate and the headline was always going to fall faster than core this year. So why is the core rate taking its time to come down? Well, one of the critical reasons here uh, is the way that the U.S. calculates housing uh, as a price in inflation. It's this entirely fictitious price 
called owner's equivalent rent. Nobody, absolutely not one American citizen pays owner's equivalent rent. It's a fantasy price, but it's also 25% of the headline inflation rate and almost 30% of the core inflation rate. It's a, it's a big part of the calculation, and that has been sticky. Now, it's not a price anybody pays, and because of how it's calculated, we know with very high conviction that this owner's equivalent rent component is going to come down, and as it comes down, the core rate will start to fall more quickly. There's also been a certain amount of weirdness about used car prices, quite a small part of the inflation number, but they move around an enormous amount, and that's also been a, a slight factor to, to work in. But as we look ahead, I think we can say with considerable confidence that the core inflation rate is going to continue to come down in the United States, and it will get back down to more normal levels by the end of the year. And one of the reasons I'm quite confident about that is it's already happened. If you live in New York, if you live in San Francisco, if you live in Chicago, if you live in Los Angeles, core inflation in your area is already below 3%. So what we've seen is large parts of the United States have actually already experienced the drop in core inflation. And there's one or two areas where the core inflation has been a lot stickier, and that's why the national average hasn't come down so quickly. But if core inflation can go below 3% in New York, there's no reason why it can't go below 3% elsewhere. All right. Thanks, Paul. So now let's uh, turn it over to Dominic and get an update on China. Why, why has China slowed? We know there's uh, issues around uh, property and other things. On the other hand, uh, you know, they just opened up from COVID. Uh, Dominic, what's going on there? Well, Mark, if you look at some of the expectations in the market, they truly have been um, not met quite clearly. As you look at some of the surprise indices, China disappointed. I think one of the areas which everybody thought there's a little bit more umph in the system would have been the consumer. So everybody was focusing the consumers are coming back. By the way, they do travel and, and they do fly as well. So demand for oil, for example, is strong. But overall spending has been quite muted as people, I guess, are still looking to save a little bit more. So that has been an area of disappointment. And we saw that in the latest numbers. Now, how do you get that kind of consumption up? Obviously quite difficult. Um, you can give handouts, but that's probably not gonna lead to additional buying. So I think what you will see here is really targeted measures by the government to make sure that maybe some of the burdens we have seen um, is reduced on, on home buyers, for example, down payments, all these kind of measures can be introduced to make sure we're gonna see a little bit more vibrant economy in, in the second half of the year. But I think we also need to realize that China's growth in the second half is probably more a story of four to 5%. And we're not gonna see much more in terms of growth. Maybe that's already good. In order to do more, I think you would see probably fiscal spending or debt to, to GDP really soar uh, above 90% of GDP. So we would need to see quite a fair bit of more stimulus. Um, that's probably not gonna happen. So I think we shouldn't get all too excited. On the other hand, if I look at, that's the economic picture, but I also look at what's happening on the asset market. I mean, clearly here, I would say bond market, not attractive for Western investor. 
as it comes for the currency, we do look for a little bit of an appreciation, but probably underwhelm the CNY in relative term versus other currencies. We do look at dollar CNY heading towards uh, 7.0 and 6.9 at the latest stage uh, this year, but that's probably going to underwhelm the rest of the world. Where there is maybe a, a attractiveness to be found, at least from a defensive angle, is that Chinese assets, and you see that in the chart here, have already weakened quite a bit in relative terms. You do not pay much. I mean, it's a multiple which is at 11 times and forward-looking less, uh, less than 10 times. So you could argue here there's not much to fall. And if there is a little bit more stimulus at some point, then market might get a little bit more exciting. There is earnings growth on the table, potentially in the, in the early, I would say in the, in the low teens, that's still possible and around 10% for next year. So we're still constructive from a defensive angle when it comes to Chinese equities. All right. Well, thank you. And uh, I'll remind folks that uh, our favorite part of these is uh, these live streams is to take your questions. So I hope you're sending them in. Um, but, uh, you know, Dominic, we, we know that uh, people around the world have been turning their currencies into U.S. dollars so they can buy these AI stocks and, and the U.S. economy is doing strong, uh, is going strong. So, Despite all that, the dollar has been weak. What what's going on with that? Well, indeed, if you just look at the charts that I sent before and some of the surprises, you would argue why should be the dollar weak? I mean, data definitely better than expected. But I think there is in the FX market a situation where people start to think about beyond the peak. I mean, the Fed is probably done in the third quarter. Um, if, if things disinflate a little bit on, on the economic side, then I think there's not more need to really hike rates materially higher. Rates differentials have been essential. And if I look maybe outside the US, for example, in Europe, I still think the need, there's a little bit more to be done by the ECB, for example. And I think that will shift at some point rates differentials in favor of a higher euro dollar and the weaker dollar in general. The other element to think about beyond the central bank is investors have allocated quite strongly to U.S. assets. And I think you look at some international data, that overallocation at some point uh, looks a little bit stretched, considering that also valuation in some of the U.S. equity market is on, on, on the higher side. So for people maybe to reposition, diversify out of the dollar, that becomes a topic into next year. And I think maybe some people have already taken some steps into that direction. We do see the dollar looking for new ranges. And I think that's a narrative that we look into the second half of the year. As it becomes clear, the Fed can actually cut rates uh, next year and beyond the more rates and monetary policy aspect and how people are positioned, there are some old school thinking about valuation, but also some current account dynamics, which at least from our perspective next year speaks more in favor of, for example, the euro or the yen, for example, and, and less against the US dollar. So there's this rotation expect it still to continue. It's not going to be a straight line, so don't expect what we have seen in recent days just to continue. But uh, by and large, over time, a euro dollar should find itself at uh, 114 by year end and 118 next year, and a little, a little bit more downside in dollar yen towards uh, the 125. So manage your dollar risk. That's clearly one of the key messages from our side for investors. 
Well, thank you. And I think uh, one of the things that's been a success for us over the years is to think about playing the whole chessboard, including currencies, including alternatives, including fixed income, not just equities. And now we're going to turn it over to Nadia to talk about the best places to invest in the second half. I think, uh, you know, it's not just about what is going strong, but the price that you have to pay for it. So Nadia, Walk us through uh, our investment thinking, uh, you know, bonds versus stocks and and dig a little deeper, please. Yes, absolutely. Thank you so much, Mark. You know, of course, U.S. equities indeed has had a strong rally in the first half of this year. And, and as you noted, Mark, much of this has been driven by valuation multiple expansion, but also it's been highly concentrated in just a handful of tech and tech enabled stocks. You know, but I would say in our minds, this has actually expanded the opportunity set. And you have alluded to that, Mark, you know, making other parts of the market and across asset class quite compelling, particularly from a relative valuation standpoint. And what I mean by that, you know, we see opportunities in fixed income, we see opportunities in some of the laggers in the global equity markets in FX and also alternative investments. Uh, we, we reiterate our global preference for high quality bonds over equities. As you heard Paul say earlier, we expect growth in the US to slow as inflation normalizes. And of course, while a recession might not be imminent, it is clear that there's still uncertainty and there's still risk um, that remains. And this is a positive in our view for, for bonds where yields are still quite attractive and can act as a hedge in any sort of economic slowdown. You know, our preference continues to be for high quality bonds and further out on the risk spectrum, we also like emerging market sovereign bonds. As uh, when I think about next week, a pivotal week in the US, the Federal Reserve hiking cycle might be on the horizon. The end of that might be on the horizon. We'll have the July FOMC meeting. And historically what has happened when the Fed stops hiking rates, as you can see there in the chart on the right, bond yields tend to decline. You know, yields right now are at multi-decade highs and it's quite important to lock in some of those yields, move out a little bit on the maturity curve, lengthening that duration. That is how we are positioning in portfolios. And that potential for, of course, capital appreciation should we see a fall in bond yields in coming months really enhances that longer term total return outlook for bonds as well. You know, if we go to the next slide, now Mark, that is not to say that we don't see opportunities in equities, of course we do. But what we're emphasizing here is to be targeted and be selective at this stage. You know, we like some of the laggers uh, where we think that the risk reward is still quite attractive and there's a potential for a catch-up trade. You know, for instance, emerging markets and select European opportunities, the US equal weighted index, and some of the value tilted uh, sectors still look quite attractive. Dominic did a great job in providing an update on our view on China. And you know, of course, while some of the macro data has indeed been mixed, we still expect this consumer-led recovery that's gonna help drive those corporate earnings growth in the low teen range and really support stocks. Now, China is a large country in the emerging market index at about 30%, and it is important, but it's not the whole index. You know, in fact, when you peel back the onion, Mark, 
EMX China has really held its own this year and has been doing well. When you look at some of the macro data, you know, in aggregate, the measures of business activity like the manufacturing PMIs are in expansionary territory across many countries. You know, we're seeing better economic growth in EM than we're seeing in some of the developed countries and valuation aren't as demanding. So also many of the emerging market central banks got ahead of the curve in terms of managing inflation. They hiked well before some of their developed market counterparts. And some of them are now in the position to start easing and cutting later this year, while many of the developed central banks are still in that hiking cycle. So that should be a positive for local EM equities. You know, shifting focus to the US, I don't have to tell you, we all know the magnificent seven mega cap large tech stocks have driven the performance this year for the S&P 500 in the first half. You know, but we think that there are opportunities among the other 493 stocks. Many of them have lagged and we think the risk reward is still quite attractive here, Mark. You know, here we think the equal weighted S&P 500 is a way to access that. You know, the market cap weighted S&P 500 outperformance versus the equal weighted index is at an extreme level from a historical standpoint, only second to the last six months of 1999 during the dot-com bubble. You can see that on the chart on the right. Basically, Mark, the, the market weighted index has just been partying in like it's 1999, you know? But we expect this performance gap to, to close. We think that there's an opportunity here for our catch-up trade in some of the laggers. I want to put that into perspective. Like, what does that mean from a sector positioning standpoint? You know, we think that it's really important here to have a balance. So we recommend some of some cyclical exposure through global industrials. Balance that out with some defensive exposure with consumer staples. You know, in fact, industrials is also part of our investing in infrastructure focus, as you know, Mark. There's just been a significant amount of fiscal support, not only in the US, but also in Europe to really modernize infrastructure and support the energy transition. So there's a nice secular tailwind that's also behind global industrials as well as green tech. So when we think about it from a thematic standpoint, there are also opportunity in automation and robotics and green tech. And lastly, Mark, if we move to the next slide, you know, as you heard Dominic discuss, we expect the US dollar to weaken. You know, we expect interest rate differentials to narrow. So in this environment, we prefer the Japanese yen and the Euro a weaker dollar and lower U.S. real bond yields, which we expect as inflation abates, as you heard Paul talk about at the top of the hour, should really favor gold, you know, which we expect to reach new all-time highs in the next 12 months. So Mark, collectively, the opportunity set is quite vast when you think about it from an asset class standpoint and from a regional standpoint. And so we continue to sharpen those pencils here at CIO to really look for the best opportunities. And Mark, it's more, as we know, more about finding that balance, fine-tuning and being able to be strategic with our risk budget when constructing the portfolio, just given the uncertain macro backdrop that still exists. 
Well, thank you, Nadia. And, you know, who wouldn't want a party like it's 1999? <laughs> who, who wants to be in the back sharpening the pencils as you say, well, you know, it's easy to party like it's 1999 when the VIX is at 13, 14, back to the pre-pandemic, uh, what me worry days. Um, but then when it picks up again, as it, as it usually does, I think some of that pencil sharpening is going to come into play. And, and, you know, I think you've described it well, where there certainly are opportunities in equities, but given the attractiveness in yields, I think for us spending more of our risk budget uh, in fixed income and in things like currencies uh, looks attractive after some of the run-ups that we've seen. So thank you. Thank you for explaining that. Now, I think we have, uh, I think we have some time for some some questions, but maybe we'll uh, maybe we'll go back to Nadia. Maybe you can kind of drill down a little bit on the U.S. earnings season and kind of you know what what we expect and and what the market's expecting. I would tell you, Mark, um, I love the earnings season because you get to know so much about what's happening in the companies and also the consumer, which we know that's what's been powering the U.S. economy and corporate earnings this year. And so we're very keen to hear what companies have to say this earnings season. And so the earnings season just really kicked off last week in the U.S. We're still in the very early innings. We've had just less than 10% of the S&P 500 companies have reported so far. But I would say, Mark, so far the companies are beaten. And it's not too surprising. Companies do tend to beat. It's on rare occasions that they miss. But I would say the bar has been lowered coming into the season we've really seen um, analysts significantly reduce their earnings expectations over the last six months and are now looking for about a 7% decline in earnings for the quarter. In terms of our expectation, we're looking for about a three to 5% year over year decline for the quarter. Um, second quarter could actually mark the, the trough in earnings for the S&P 500. But Mark, a lot of optimism is already priced into US equities. You know, we have a market that is trading at 19 and a half times forward PE. We've had one of the strongest pre-earnings rally in the last couple of years. We've seen the market move up over 8% since the end of May. So quite powerful. You know, so despite the beats, you know, we expect stocks to reactions to be a little bit more muted this quarter. Um, to put it into context and pull back the lens a little bit more, for full year 2023, we in CIO are looking for earnings to decline about 2% for the S&P 500. But to put that in context, it's not too far from where the current consensus is. The current consensus is looking for about flat for this year. And it's come down quite a bit and more towards our estimates uh, year over, uh, year to date. Um, and just, I'll just hit the banks quickly because the banks have reported um, so far, a few of them reported. And in general, banks earnings are, coming in better than expected, the consumer is still healthy, um, but I would say the bank CEO have been more measured and downbeat about the outlook, just given the uncertainty, some of the uncertainties that we have cited earlier in this call. Yeah, I think uh, your point about the guidance going forward, that's critical uh, as people you know, take a very uncertain uh, macro environment and try to figure out what that's going to mean for earnings in the second half. I know that's, that's what I'm going to be looking for uh, through the earnings cycle. Um, maybe uh, maybe one last question to Dominic about China. Kind of, can you drill down a little bit? What are what are kind of the milestones ahead when we're going to get a little more clarity on 
on policy, things that you're looking for and, and you know, signs that it's breaking one way or the other? Well, Mark, I would definitely look at the Politburo meeting, which is uh, at the end of the month in July. I think we do look for a little bit more stimulus. Uh, I think the stimulus will be targeted in two areas. One of the reasons why consumer has been weak is still the pain that they feel on the property side and really trying to fix that property challenges is, is highest priority. So you need to give here a little bit more certainty. So we do look for some of these 16 measures that have been announced in November to continue. As I said, for example, down payment being eased, for example, or requirements being eased, and obviously also bringing down some of the, the cost burden. So I think if you get a strong signal here, that would be helpful because that really held, at least from our perspective, held back the consumers as that is a key element of Chinese wealth. It's really the property sector. So that's one thing, but it can't be everything. What we also need to see is a little bit more fiscal spending. So special bonds on uh, financial bonds, for example, but also local government bonds, that is of help as well. And if it would be all orchestrated from a more national level, then clearly that would be helpful too. So we wanna see more more activity of the same that we have seen in these two directions because one thing is clear not all is bad in, in china we have seen industrial production surprising to the upside we have seen um, fixed asset investment being better than expected so where government policy support is reaching uh, activity then definitely we can also see here some robustness emerging so I think that's what I'm looking at at this point in time. Obviously, also watching the negative impact of negative export growth, how that one going to filter through. But China still is, by and large, uh, the focus is on the domestic economy. And normally, export developments do not shape the longer term picture and the growth trajectory. All right. Well, as we enter the second half, you know, we're looking at Politburo meetings in China. We're looking at... Uh, the Politburo known as the Federal Reserve in the United States, kind of these, these kind of governmental policy decisions are key to what happens in the second half of the year. Uh, as much as all of us on this call, and I'm sure you at home would just like to focus on uh, companies and, and earnings and, and markets just kind of functioning, but that's not necessarily the world we're gonna live in. We've known that for some time, and we've and we've taken that on board with our uh, investment stance. We think that actually, um, kind of the mix of uh, the markets functioning on uh, kind of free market principles and also the importance of government regulation and stimulus uh, do make for a interesting but navigable uh, investment outlook. That's why we're trying to play the whole chessboard with bonds, with stocks, uh, with private investments, with, which, you know, kind of uh, many, many people are reluctant to go into private equity or private, uh, private debt right now, but actually it can be a good time as um, we had that sell off last year and, and some have shied away and there are companies that need capital. Um, so this is a time to play the whole chessboard. I think we're, we're set up uh, looking for a little bit more of our risk budget out of fixed income, given some of the uncertainty, um, but, st but still in the game with things like emerging market debt and equity. So with that, I want to wish everyone a happy and safe summer, and we look forward to doing this again soon. Bye-bye.
UBS Chief Investment Office's investment views are prepared and published by the Global Wealth Management Business of UBS AG or its affiliate, UBS. This material has no regard to the specific investment objectives, financial situation, or particular needs of any specific recipient and is published for informational purposes only. As a firm providing wealth management services to clients globally, UBS AG and its subsidiaries offer both investment advisory services and brokerage services. Investment advisory services and brokerage services are separate and distinct, differ in material ways and are governed by different laws and separate arrangements. In the USA, UBS Financial Services Inc. is a subsidiary of UBS AG and a member of FINRA SIPC. For information, please visit our website at UBS.com forward slash working with us. For a full legal disclaimer applicable to the independent investment views produced by UBS, please visit our website at UBS.com forward slash CIO disclaimer.